Hey, everybody, when you hear that sound, you know that it's time for On the Lighter Side of Baseball, that title in town, Chicago. And during these times of what I'll refer to as COVID-19, we try to bring a little bit of the light side, lighter side of baseball, a little humor, and just a little bit of uh, joy to whoever's going to listen to this podcast. And the audiences have been going up, and I am so excited to have a good friend of mine and one of the easiest voices in the country to listen to, and in my opinion, one of the greatest uh, baseball broadcasters that I've ever heard, none other than the voice of the Tampa Bay Rays, Dwayne Stats. Dwayne, how are you doing, man? Jamie, uh, doing well. I, I have to tell you, you read that intro. I sent you flawlessly, so thank you. Well, I'll tell you what. I could have gone on a lot longer, and I know that uh, – I've bored you with my renditions and admiration of everything you've done. And we'll get into a little bit of your background, maybe not the entire time you were a Saluki, but uh, I'm just glad to, uh, glad to talk to you and, and hope you, you and your family are doing good. How's it going down there? I think uh, we're, doing, uh, we're doing very well and uh, blessed to uh, be able to say that. We have uh, our three grandchildren just five minutes down the street. So they're within striking distance so far as social distancing will allow. Um, so we're, um, we're doing well, two daughters, you know, in the area. So, uh, and all of us, uh, knock on wood, are healthy. So that's where we are. That's what counts. What, uh, you know, this is opening day in Kansas City. Um, I'm, I'm a fan and more than a casual observer. It's your love and your business. What, uh, what are you doing right now, just uh, non-baseball? And then tell us a little bit about what you're doing with baseball. Well, we, um, uh, it's really a change of pace. Number one, uh, it occurred to me the other day, I've never really been home on evenings uh, at this time of the year. So uh, Carla and I try to make sure that we uh, spend some time on our uh, on our balcony because we were fortunate enough to have a great sky out there and a, a sunset into the gulf and it just it occurred to me that it's light much later than i usually think it is because we're either uh, uh inside in uh, in the a dome like tropicana field or we're um you know, somewhere on the road preparing to do a night game and, and you don't really think about uh, the sky always, particularly in some of the newer ballparks because they're so gigantic in scope. So, you know, I look out there and it's uh, it's 7 o'clock and it's 8 o'clock and 8.30 and I'm thinking, wow, look at this sky. This is beautiful. So we're doing a lot of sky watching, spending time out there, uh, trying to catch up on my reading and uh, we've uh, you know we've we've done all the things that we're supposed to do i think in terms of uh staying uh within our bounds and uh, we just keep going and we're uh the other thing that i think a lot of people are doing we're uh, uh checking out some uh some video presentations of some things and some of these uh, uh programs that uh, that are on Netflix and this and that so that's what we've been up to well folks you heard a play-by-play on watching clouds and you're not going to hear that very often uh, most of the time he's going to be sitting in the booth at Tropicana Field or 
or somewhere. And uh, that's where actually uh, I first met Dwayne. He was a broadcast partner with uh, the guy that I talk about on this show all the time. And <clears throat> somebody's talking about six degrees or, or of Kevin Bacon. My life is one degree of Dave Nelson. And so I hearken back to 1988, uh, maybe before the first night game, but you and Dave were partnered up and you were actually Dave's first uh, TV partner, radio partner. And, uh, you were, you know, so impressive, but, but, uh, Nelly was such a good guy and he comes up quite a bit on the show. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, he, he obviously made a, a big impression in uh, the lives of so many people, uh, people will never hear about. And, and just his presence was so great. Uh, I love that time. I know you guys, uh, go back and proceed with your friendship and business arrangements and all of that. Precede the time that uh, Davey and I got together, but those were uh, uh, wonderful times. And Davey often comes to my mind just uh, thinking about what a positive force he was. And it's uh, it's good to hear that that he comes up a lot in your conversations. You know, it's funny. I, I uh, uh, when Nellie passed away. Uh, he had given me all of his uh, memorabilia uh, collection and from, you know, people I've never heard of to all the way to Hank Aaron and back. And then people that were in the entertainment business, the guy just uh, had this amazing ability to make friends with, uh, with astronauts, with uh, guys on the America cup sailing team and, and the whole gamut. I mean, as you as you knew, he just had this electrifying personality. And, uh, and so it's been fun to try to figure out some of the names on these baseballs. <laughs> Hard to do. Yeah, well, I, you couldn't help but engage yourself with him, you know, and, and just to watch him. No. So I, I, I loved all of that. Uh, I loved our time together, and it was always great to, to be able to uh, spend time with him uh, at the ballpark and, uh, and then in private time and uh, Carl and I had uh, Davey uh, over here in Florida because as you know he spent a good amount of his time in Florida not too far from when we are now and we uh, always loved being with him just a just a joy of a guy yeah I joked that my uh, my kids my stepkids and um, my grandkids if you ask them uh, who do you want to show up at the doorstep Santa Claus or Nellie Hands down, was pitching a shutout against Santa Claus. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I remember, you know, I I really have always appreciated our friendship and the times that uh, we, you and I, have gotten together for for meals, whether it's with Carla or by ourselves. And I I laugh because the last time we uh, got together was in Chicago, and uh, I told my wife Kay, I'm going to go uh, meet Dwayne for for dinner and you're invited and she goes no you know when you and Dwayne get together there's really not much room for anybody else to talk and I came back after dinner I go you know that was the quickest hour that lasted about three and a half or four hours and it was just hilarious as are most of the times but uh, I, I appreciate it and look forward to when we can get together again. Yeah me too I'd say both our wives are pretty insightful when it comes to that which is great and uh you know, we're, uh, we're, we're looking forward, as I think most people are now, to being able to get out of the house and uh, stretch their wings a little bit, and we're hoping that that'll be uh, sooner rather than later. 
I, I will tell you a story about this situation we're all in. Um, you know, sometimes you you look for that uh, that omen of of good things to come, and uh, we we do try to spend the evening uh, outdoors on the balcony, and uh, we have had uh, and I, I posted this the other day. Uh, in a span of about a week, we had we had uh, a dove that uh, kept coming back and landing on our railing about every other day. So I finally took a photo of it and, and posted that and, and thought this, this has to be um, a sign of better things to come, at least some hope. And, uh, you know, the, the dove has a lot of, uh, uh, I guess, a lot of heavy lifting on, uh, on its back right now, if that's going to happen, but we're certainly looking forward to uh, a time when we can uh, crisscross the country again and, and spend time together. No, I know it. And uh, uh, photography now is part of your hobby. You're going to have to, you know, list with, with great pride. But uh, no, I think that I keep looking and, and uh, uh, I don't think the uh, trip to Chicago in, in uh, May is probably going to happen, but you never know. And and certainly, I uh, look ahead to the schedule with the uh, Rays and the Royals to get twice the opportunity to try to figure out getting together. And uh, I think by June or July, we ought to be playing baseball again, don't you? I mean, nobody really knows for sure. Yeah, I'm I'm hopeful of that. Um, I I think somebody asked me that the other day, and uh, what I thought, and I I think. Baseball is going to do everything it can um, to make this a season, whether that's going to be, you know, obviously it's not, not going to be 162 games, but they've talked about all kinds of scenarios about uh, playing uh, double headers, maybe two double headers a week and um, expanding rosters to help with some of the arms. So I think we'll see some things like that. And I think at the end of the day, I, Realistically, I think if they could if they could get a hundred games in, they talked about extending the season as well. If they could get a hundred games in, I think everyone would be very happy with that. So I'm I'm uh, looking at uh, still holding out hope that they could get a hundred in. I, I think eighty to a hundred is probably uh, realistic now, but we'll see. I mean, maybe it could be better. I hope it's not worse than that. Yeah, I think. Um... You know, like I said, if they get started, I guess the earliest scenario, because they're talking about spring training again, would be maybe Memorial Day. The Memorial Day weekend would be great. Mm -hmm. you know, then you jump ahead to the 4th of July and somewhere in between. I mean, I got to believe in the baseball vernacular, we've rounded first and we just need to get past second base and, you know, and get going on towards hopefully getting this thing under control and maybe maybe uh, an early vaccine comes into play. Who knows? You can only pray, hope that, that uh, these things come, come true. But in the meantime, you know, just trying to stay healthy and, and not, not do anything to endanger anybody in the family. But, uh, you know, I'm anxious to get back and, and hear your voice. It's a lot easier to do a podcast about baseball when there's something to criticize, you know? <laughs> exactly. The, uh, I always, I sort of laugh at the, uh, the beneficiaries of, I guess, and again, uh, on the podcast, try to find some humorous things. One thing that I, and I have a warped sense of humor, one thing I thought was kind of funny is that the, your old 
your old guys, the Astros, are probably one of the teams benefiting from from a bit of a lull and getting everybody's attention off of uh, uh, those cheating champs, as I like to call them. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I I, I think they've uh, they've been upstaged, and it has taken something like this to upstage uh, what they've done, and and it's a stage that they'd prefer not to be on. Although I think a lot of us are. Uh, not altogether happy with uh, with their approach in the aftermath of all that. Uh, you know, it was hard to think that there were uh, some genuine apologies. There was a, you know, I, I think the reaction they got is is what could be expected. Number one uh, for what happened, and number two for the way they recognized or failed to recognize. Uh, the, the gravity of that, and and I don't think a lot of people feel that there were a lot of uh, positive uh, and genuine uh, apologies offered. So uh, I, they're probably uh, in their minds a, a little. I, I don't know if anybody is better off in this situation, but if there's if there's one team that that was going to have a tough year, uh, particularly on the road, and I think there were some people in Houston as well who were very disappointed with. The, that club and and what had gone on uh, yeah it, it's 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 a brutal thing that happened although uh, I mean I'm not in a position to uh, you know to make excuses for anybody um, it's interesting and in that that type of thing had gone on in this game for a long time and not with the, the technology that they used which I think made it all the worse but as you know i mean sign stealing and things like that it it was really part of gamesmanship if it would be inside the game you know if if somebody's base runner is looking in from second base and and tries to figure out what the signs are and the relays those and i think both teams know that if uh, you're caught doing that you might find one up and in under the chin somewhere amen uh, that was a whole different situation, I think. But historically, outside of picking up uh, pitcher tipping pitches or looking in at the catcher and knowing that you might have to pay a price, um, you know, you go all the way back to Connie Mack, uh, you know, uh, that ballpark, uh, Scheib uh, Field, uh, Field in, uh, or in, Park, Philadelphia. in Park, yeah, in Philadelphia, you know, they had a similar situation that uh, Wrigley had across uh, the streets there with, uh, you know, two or three four-story buildings. And at Shibe Park, uh, Connie Mack had a guy out there in the windows of one of those with a pair of binoculars and uh, doing his own relaying, picking up and relaying of signs uh, to help out. And, you know, the whole New York Giants and the uh, – Bobby Thompson and the shout heard around the world. Uh, DeRocher had a guy stationed in the uh, scoreboard at the polo grounds trying to pick up signs and relay those. So you've had all of those kinds of things, but I, I don't think uh, on the stage and, and with all of the technology that we have today, I think it's, it's been perceived uh, and instant communication it's it has certainly been perceived as something far worse than than 
any cheating that's happened in the game or other sports. Uh, well, I think that's, I think uh, you've you've obviously hit on a couple things, and and uh, I've gotten more carried away on a few podcasts about the punishment and the inability of the teams to apparently police the game themselves anymore. Uh, I can. I can always laugh at what would Bob Gibson have done if somebody had been picking off his signs and then trying to relay them, even yep. in the old days where, you know, you raise your right hand if you, you know, looking for a location. And I, I uh, go back to the, the pitcher for the White Sox who apparently, I, I don't remember his name, Quarles maybe, it was like that in a, in a situation where he perceived that the Astros were doing just exactly what they were doing. And he calls the catcher out and they, you know, he's John with the catcher and you can see that he's agitated, sends the catcher back. And then he throws a slider down and away. I'm going like, you know, police the game. You can't slide into second base. You can't not, you know, knock over McCann and say, tell your suckers to stop stealing signs or we're going to barrel into you again. So, yeah. uh, I, I do think one of the big ironies in light of their punishment was that if somebody throws at a Astro repeatedly, they're going to do more suspended time than the Astros. Yeah, and that just doesn't seem quite right, does it? No, and you know, I never prosecuted. I defended a lot of cases and, and criminal back in the military days, but I never knew a prosecutor that dealt with everybody in the conspiracy and gave them all immunity because then there was nobody left to, to prosecute. So I think that uh, maybe Manfred could have gotten the same result with um, giving immunity to everybody. But then again, I, I wonder and harken back to the steroid days, if he had gone after players, whether the guys in the union would have been so vocal against the Astros. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Uh, I thought about that as well, and and I, my take on it is, I just don't think they wanted to deal with the uh, with the union and the players' association. To me, it would have been really interested. I would have been interested in seeing had that scenario developed, uh, what the reaction of the individual members of the players' association would have been, because they've always been a united bunch. And I just wonder, it would have been a big mess for the union, perhaps, and, and for management and ownership and, you know, the commissioner's office and all of that, had they tried to, uh, tried to do that. I, I think you would have had uh, the, the union creating an issue. I think you would have had attorneys creating an issue. And I thought, boy, if, if because here's the, here's the thing. At the end of the day, the commissioner likes to give the impression that he is lording over the best interest of baseball owners, players, fans, and all of that. But essentially, he has nothing to do with the players and the players association. Uh, he has to go through negotiated guidelines to, to essentially deal with them. So he actually represents the owners and they've got to figure out what to do. So. You know, when you when you look at what happened here, two guys lose their jobs, uh, AJ Hinch, and um, and the GM over in and uh, Houston at the time, Lunau. So 
everybody else in their own way walks. And, and I think the two guys who had uh, no player association to defend them and no one in the ownership group is going to step up and do that. So they were complicit, and you could argue about how complicit one was over another, but they had no one to protect them. And so those are the fall guys to this point because there are a lot of – it's not only those two guys, Luno and, uh, and Hinch in, uh, in Houston who were involved in this, but they're the only guys on the outside looking in right now. Right. You know, and Cora got his uh, his punishment, I guess, from the owner of the Red Sox, who, by the way, uh, what's happening with the Red Sox report? You know, they were they were like two weeks away from getting uh, whatever it was they were going to get. That never happened. And then Beltron with the, the Mets. But I often wondered about my friend Dave Dombrowski. And does Dombrowski, so even though he doesn't have a job right now in baseball, does he get the one-year ban even – even if he didn't have any knowledge or involvement in it. I don't know. I mean, I obviously there are other teams that have done it. Obviously the game has changed and you better than anybody would see those changes in the long time you've had the privilege of broadcasting baseball. But um, to me, it's just really gotten away from the players policing themselves and, and uh, whatever it takes to, to win. So. It, disappointing should Joe Jackson be in the Hall of Fame you bet I don't know if I'll go that far with the the hit king Pete but um you know I got in I got into you know the owner should have been banned the player should have been banned and if you're not going to ban the owner of the Astros because he knew had to know what was going on a little better I would think that and from my standpoint guilty without any evidence I don't have any evidence linking him to anything but um, you know, it's like Hinch saying he didn't know anything, but he still took a swing at the TV. Come on. Yeah. Um, and they'd all like to redo it because they got caught. You know, it's just like so many people, until you get caught, you're not going to come clean. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. But uh, I love the Hall of Fame. And speaking of the Hall of Fame and changing the subject, and without – luckily, I don't think there's a – thousands of people that listen to the podcast, I thought you should have been admitted and given the Ford Frick Award because from the bottom of my heart, I think you deserve it. And, you know, you're too nice a guy to worry about it, and hawk is hawk. So there you go. Well, what do you have to say, Dwayne? <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I, you know, just to – here's the deal. I, to be nominated and, and being among that group um, on a couple of occasions, I, I'm uh, – uh, privileged and and happy to have had that honor and uh, you know who knows going forward what happens but uh, I, I at the end of the day I, I not unlike a lot of us uh, in and around this game I was a guy who grew up loving the game played it as a kid uh, was a fan as a kid uh, lived and died with uh, all kinds of uh, broadcasts that I had listened to across the board I thought I thought being a kid growing up in the Midwest, in the St. Louis area on the Illinois side, where most most of my friends were Cardinal fans and there were a few Cub fans in the mix, and somehow, uh, I guess I was probably nine years old, I picked up on this little plastic radio we had, 
the Colt 45s turned into the Astros. And right. for a nine, 10 year old kid to hear a major league baseball game from that uh, wild Western state of Texas, you know, in our minds at that time, it was too much to behold. And I, I listened to those games and uh, Harry and Jack uh, in St. Louis, and I could pull in uh, the Cubs. Uh, we were pretty far downstate, but, and even Bob Prince in Pittsburgh. So as a kid, I, that's how I spent my time. I, I just uh, was fascinated by the game and got a chance to be exposed to some of the great broadcasters of all time and, and work with and around them. Uh, nobody uh, better than Gene Elston uh, to be in, uh, in Chicago when Harry was there and, and firsthand to be involved with, you know, the, uh, uh, the, uh, phenomenon that he was and then uh, and Jack Buck I always thought uh, Jack in my mind was as good as you could find in terms of uh, that uh, ability to cover a game uh, build the suspense in a situation not be intrusive but still had that tremendous presence he had and he always appeared to me and and I I tell my wife I kind of like to live my life the way he walked down to the broadcast booth I would see him uh, come in and as a as a kid broadcaster he was always very kind to me and I would see him walk down uh, the hall the hallway on the way to the booth to do a game and he was as relaxed as anybody, you know, some people in this business, it is a live uh, broadcast we're doing, and there's, there is uh, some emotion involved and, and maybe uh, a little uh, uh, case of nerves still once in a while. I still get a little charge of it when we go on the air, which is great. I hope I never lose that. But Jack was so relaxed. I don't think I've ever seen a guy who was more low-key. It was as if he were taking a walk in the park, strolling down that hallway and into their booth. And I thought, man, if, if you can be uh, that good and, and that prepared, that confident in what you're going to do and enjoy it that much, uh, that is, that's the quintessential experience of, of, I think, any job. I'm sure you were the same way when you were defending uh, clients in the court. Uh, you strolled right in, knew you were prepared, and uh, you were ready to have a little fun. And that's what I've tried to do with this game. <laughs> I might have perspired more than you in the booth, uh, <laughs> uh, depending on the client and the level of uh, uh, the level of merit to our case. But you know, when I was a kid, uh, and, and obviously I've told you this before. I've told Dave, you and Dave, and Dave especially, everything that I wanted to be in life, you know a broadcaster, a baseball player, a coach, whatever, you know, Nellie grabbed all those things and did a great job. You're the same way. We all wanted to play, but you know, everybody retires at a different age. For me, it was like my sophomore year at SMU after sitting on the bench for 65 games of which my team won like six. I figured <laughs> maybe I wasn't cut out to be a baseball player. Yeah, go Mustangs. I would go to bed at at home with a transistor radio under my pillar, pillow. And unlike you who got the pleasure of listening to Jack Buck or Gene Elston or Bob Prince, I listened to Bob Elson. And, you know, 
as he was called the commander, and he did my beloved White Sox way back then. But uh, boy, oh boy, people said, and I think that was right, he'd read the paper in between pitches because he wasn't real exciting. Then one of, one of your partners, who I'm going to get your impressions of in a minute, Milo Hamilton, uh, teamed up with Bob Elson. And uh, um, then Red Rush, who did Loyola basketball, and on and on and on. I just love the broadcast medium in terms of being a fan. And I love the Vince Scullys. I could listen, excluding you, I've already kissed your butt enough. I could listen to Euchre till the day I die. You know, um, he's, he's a great guy. He was a good friend of Nellie's. He uh, uh, was at hospice every day, just a regular guy. Uh, but his broadcasts are just so pristine. And um, oh, what, what term? They're just, the picture he paints is, is um, what you get without any, and with all due respect to Costas, he doesn't paint the same picture as, as Bob, but, uh, and Bob's great too. I'm not going to criticize anybody, but man, you, um, Tom Hamilton, another guy that was nominated with. Oh you. yeah, absolutely. Love so him. Here, here's the deal. And I go back to Nelly, not to dwell, but I dwell on my guys know that I go back and forth and segue and unsegue if that's a word, but, but you and Tom Hamilton and Harry Carey were three pretty good guys to get, uh, to broadcast anything with, let alone Cubs baseball and Cleveland baseball. And, uh, you know, what a thrill it was for me to get to meet those guys through Dave, excluding you. Well, and, and all of us were better off for having Dave, uh, as, as a partner and, uh, and more than that, as a friend, uh, you know, I, I, I think the list you just named, uh, makes a point in and of itself that in this game, those are all great broadcasters. And it's difficult to pick which broadcaster you like the most and who's number one and who's number 100, you know, because the game allows, because of, I think, the pacing of it and because fans are so familiar with it, it allows a number of things more than just covering a game. Uh, fans will have their opinions because they're well-versed in this game. And all of those broadcasters in their own way and whatever style they had were able to reach through the medium, whether it was radio or television, whatever it's going to be, and make a connection with fans. And baseball, covering baseball, I think, allows you to do that more than any other sport. You know, we've all watched all the other sports and identify great broadcasters. Some of them cross over. But I think because of the pacing of the game and the long schedule uh, every year of the game, it's, it's, it's like having a friend with you on a day-in and day-out basis. And so I think all of those guys you mentioned uh, are great broadcasters and people perceive them as broadcasters, but they also perceive them as friends at least uh, good acquaintances. And I, th I think that's sort of the magic of this mix of broadcasting and what we do. And if we can do that, uh, then we can, we can spin it into uh, actually 
convincing someone they should send us a paycheck for. There you go. And uh, like I said, you, you deserve it. You've, you have had a great career and, and it's probably only half over, but um, the, 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 give a little summary to everybody, uh, you know, with um, starting maybe with the Astros. And, and I, I know that when you were a young youngster, you uh, developed a relationship with uh, Gene Elston and some of the others that led to uh, uh, combining your talent with an opportunity. But, uh, you know, and along the way, maybe a game or two that, that, uh, that stands out in your mind from Houston to Chicago to New York to Tampa. And uh, because it's interesting and, and I've got as much time as you have. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I tell you, I, I was fortunate uh, to uh, develop a relationship with, uh, with Gene Elston, who, uh, uh, you know, passed away a few years ago. In fact, uh, just a couple of days ago would have been his 98th birthday. Uh, I sent him a letter as a, as a kid, and he responded, and that was the beginning of this old mess that we've gotten ourselves into. Uh, I still have that letter on Colt 45 stationery. And, and so from that, that correspondence, we went back and forth, and I would send him a note as time went by uh, asking for advice about broadcasting and different things. And lo and behold, that was my first major league job. Uh, I spent a little time in Oklahoma City a couple of years, uh, which was a, a great opportunity there because I, I did everything that you could do involved in running a minor league operation. Dick King was the general manager there. And I literally, uh, uh, whether I was broadcasting, painting, washing, typing, uh, calculating, all of those things I did, particularly the first year I was there. It was just anything to get an opportunity to broadcast minor league baseball at the time, triple A baseball, which for me, uh, you know, just give me enough money so I can buy myself enough food and have a place to stay. And I'll, I'll do all the work you want me to do just to give me that opportunity to broadcast. And, and as it turned out, that was a, a good foundation for me to wind up in Houston, um, having followed that club as closely as I did all those years and knowing the history of it, it gave me, I thought sort of a, a head start in that job. Uh, some of the great moments there though, had to be uh, Nolan Ryan's, uh, fifth no-hitter at the time. It was a record-breaking no-hitter. Koufax had four, and Nolan threw his fifth against the Dodgers. Uh, I, I recall uh, Dusty Baker making the final out on a ground ball to Art Howe at third base, and uh, and then uh, Gene and I worked that game together on radio. Tony Kubek uh, was there on NBC, and and Tony and I, uh, then shared an interview with Nolan after that game, which was uh, a cool memory for me because then later on I worked uh, the Yankee games with Tony and uh, loved him as a, as a partner. He was as thorough as anybody and as personable as anyone. But from, uh, from Houston to Chicago, uh, you know, it, it was an abbreviated evening uh, when they had the first night game. but. Uh, uh, we were doing 
the first three on radio and the middle three on TV. And then had there been the last uh, three that would have been on radio, but that game, as you'll recall, was rained out. Uh, it started. I've got the lineup card. It got it, it got into the fourth inning, which sent me to TV. And then the rain delay came. And then uh, Steve Stone and I got to uh, talk to everybody in the ballpark uh, during the rain delay until they finally decided that that was it. Uh, that was quite an experience there. The uh, you know the '89 season was really great because. Uh, they, uh, they didn't make it all the way to the World Series, but they had a, a great group of uh, players. And, you know, uh, Jimmy Fry, who had been the manager there and then had been fired and wound up as my partner for a year or two and oh, then okay. came, came back as the GM, essentially the GM. Don Zimmer was the manager. Uh, so 89 was kind of a fun year because – you know, when, when you went, everybody's the greatest. Players are the best. The broadcasters are the best. Right. Front office filled with geniuses and all that. But that was a fun year. Um, I think my time in New York, uh, the special moment, because the Yankees were not good at that point. They By the time I left, they had started to get good. You started to see some of the guys like Bernie Williams surface. But to me, the, the great moment there would have been Jim Abbott's no-hitter. Right. What a story Jim Abbott was in the game and, and the game of life, really. Uh, Jim is a super guy, and for him then to throw the no-hitter uh, against the Indians, I think it was uh, Carlos Bayerga who grounded out to uh, to uh, Randy Velarde at shortstop to end that one. Uh, that, was a, that was a great moment there. Uh, you know, I spent – then I spent three years full-time at ESPN doing a Wednesday night game, and – and uh, some other uh, games they had, and then college basketball and football. And um, coming out of that then to uh, Tampa Bay, because I, when I took a Yankee job, I had moved to Florida, so I was here already. But to open a franchise, you know, that first game in 98 was, uh, was really a, a special event for me. Uh, I actually had called Gene because – he, he took that Houston job. Gene Elson had been on the mutual game of the day and had also been on the Cubs crew in his career. And he took the Houston job uh, knowing that in 62 he would be there as, as their lead guy. And uh, so I called him and talked to him about his approach with an expansion team, knowing that you're probably not going to be very good you know, there at the beginning. We talked about that, and here we are all these years later in 98 with a new expansion team. So I knew going in that uh, the chances of this franchise winning right off the bat was not going to happen. I wasn't sure we were all prepared for 10 years of losing, but we got through that because we – sold the game, introduced the game, covered the game, tried to have fun, tried to have those human moments in the, in the game in those 10 years of what on the field turned out to be a, a lot of frustration. But then to be with this club when things started to turn around in 08, when they went to the World Series, and then the seasons beyond that, I'd have to – well, I want to make sure I'm right here, but – you know, you, you look at a span of 
over the last 12 years or so, I think they've had winning seasons in eight or nine of those 12 seasons. Uh, all of the postseason appearances have been uh, fun. Uh, they've had some really dramatic moments here. Uh, the one no-hitter they've had, Matt Garza threw against Detroit, has sort of been overlooked with some of the other drama, you know, the and, and some of the unexpected. Everybody goes back to the home run hit by Evan Longoria. That was uh, come back and beat the Yankees after the Rays had fallen behind and managed to battle their way back and win that one. But the Dan Johnson home runs, you know, he hit that home run right. uh, that year in Boston. Uh, they had called him up. Uh, he was going to be in the starting lineup that night. And because of traffic, could not get to the ballpark in time. So they had to rearrange the starting lineup, which made him available late in the game to hit that dramatic home run coming off the bench. So, um, you know, just a, a thumbnail sketch of starting in Oklahoma City and winding up where we are now. Yeah, well. Those would, those would be, you know, some of the, uh, some of the really cool moments. I think I've been able moments. to do, uh, uh, I think, nine no-hitters. And I think probably six of those would have been against the team I was broadcasting for. But uh, I but I go back to Nolan Ryan's fifth no hitter and Jim Abbott's no hitter. Yeah, I was going to say really Abbott. The Abbott no hitter would have been absolutely thrilling to be at, let alone to be calling it. Just because how in the world he made it to the major leagues, how in the world he succeeded in the major leagues, and how in the world he did what he did is just a tribute to perseverance and tenacity and every other thing you can say about a guy. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure there are many stories that equal that. I yeah, know, you know, but... his, his parents, and I, I thought one of the great things about him and how he accomplished what he did, uh, of course, born without a, a right hand, uh, he told me once that his parents never, never allowed him, not that he was looking for it, but ne- – he never had a mindset that there was a disadvantage to uh, not having a right hand, which is an incredible mindset when you think he had that as a child and carried that through his time at Michigan and, uh, and then in the big leagues and to throw that no hitter. Uh, that's one of the great stories in all of sport. He was kind of a low key guy, a really f- intelligent, friendly guy, but not one who would, look for the limelight all the time. And I think because of that, his accomplishment has been overlooked. But I think as a, as a story in the annals of human beings and athletic competition, I think Jim Abbott's story is one of the greatest of all time. I don't know that you can get much better than what he accomplished and at the level uh, he accomplished it in. So, and, and I think it all started there. He just never saw that as a disadvantage. No, and I think – um, it is one of the great accomplishments, and, and he's, you know, I, the word I was trying to think of with, with Euchre was understated to a large degree, which is maybe a lot of people would disagree with that, given his TV shows and his beer commercials and just being Bob Euchre, but, you know, Abbott would probably be more famous if he was more charismatic or a little, and he might have been the most charismatic guy in the world, but to a fan, he's a little bit of Mike Trout. You know, Mike Trout doesn't do much to toot his own horn. He doesn't need to. 
But here's yeah. Abbott, who really, you'd be hard pressed to find a, a, a person that was more physically challenged, that was able to do more on a baseball field than, than Abbott. I, I can't think of anybody in the major leagues. I'm sure three finger Mordecai Brown and da 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 come to mm-hmm. me. But, you know, I think uh, that's what's so much fun about baseball. And as a baseball junkie and as a memorabilia collector and a lover of the Hall of Fame, before we got on the podcast, I was slipping through the 2016 Hall of Fame um, book that you get when you go to the Hall of Fame or if you're, you know, fortunate enough to contribute a lot of money to the Hall of Fame. And I'd flip to these pages and every page I'd flip to, you know, triggered a story. Everything you say, Randy Velarde. Now, how many people remember Randy Velarde? Well, Nellie and I had a very unsuccessful uh, sports agency business and we had spectacular guys on the White Sox at time to time that ultimately fired us or me. <laughs> From Kenny Carcavice to John Cangelosi to Kenny Williams, the president and, and good friend of Jerry Reinsdorf, and I love Reinsdorf. And uh, we had Bobby Thigpen. And so what I would do, even though I was a practicing lawyer, I'd go and I promised these guys, because David said, you know, they don't get much representation. I said, all right. So I'd represent them through the minor leagues, and then when they'd make the show, away I'd go. But the funny thing about Velarde, when uh, Thiggy was at the short A League, at the New York Penn League, I dutifully flew to wherever, Albany, and, and found, found Thiggy. And, and Dave goes, hey, you know, he's ruined with a guy named Randy Velarde. You ought to sign him up, too. And I go, dude, I've got about 20 guys. I can't babysit any more of these guys. <laughs> and uh, so it's funny because, uh, uh, you know, he played 20 years in the major leagues. Another guy that I had, short story, was a guy named Al Jones, who was from Elkhorn State, threw sidearm. The White Sox kept trying to cut him, but he couldn't be cut. He saved Tom Seaver's first three wins in the American League goes into uh, Fenway, it's raining in early April, warms up four times, comes in in the ninth inning, strikes out Rice, Armas, and Evans, retires the side, Sox get a run, he gets the win and never pitched again. How about that? Alfornia Jones. How many guys named Alfornia have you interviewed? Yeah, none. Zero. <laughs> hey, let me take a break, and I'm going to put uh, the recording on hold, and... Um, then we can visit real briefly. Hold on. See if I can do this. All right. I think we are back uh, recording. I see the little red buttons going. Uh, Dwayne probably knows I'm as lacking in technological capabilities anybody, but segment two, I joke around about sponsors. We're still trying to get uh, Jerry Reinsdorf to sponsor the show. Jerry keeps telling me he won't do it. I keep talking about cigars, and he says, well, maybe we'll talk later. But one sponsor I do have is uh, Chris and Didi. They're getting ready to open Papa Kino's as soon as the health situation uh, gets over that. But in the meantime, folks, all you folks in Kansas City that are listening, call up Chris Didi at uh, Mr. Euros and their four locations and uh, you go out and uh, they'll bring you your food right out to your car. And uh, as you know, it's great food. And so uh, 
Mr. Euro, Papakino, and uh, Dwayne. Mr. Stats uh, happens to have a little connection to Greece, or you did. How's that going? Well, we uh, we have uh, and still do. My uh, my late wife uh, was a Greek girl, and uh, her mother uh, was born on the island of Rhodes. And through the years, uh, as you know, families go back and forth, but uh, they have. Uh, it, it seems, and I think this is true in America as well. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, we, don't have a, we don't have a cough button on our. Yeah, that's all right. Um, I, I think in the, you know, everybody's from somewhere. And uh, my, my folks grew up uh, primarily in uh, southeast Missouri. So, you know, that's one of the home places. And, and for the Greeks, you know, they're all over. Uh, the map there in the Mediterranean, but uh, her mother's folks were from the island of Rhodes, and you always tend to have either some property or a little homestead or something there, a family home, and and that was true in their case. And as more and more people uh, came to uh, America, and as some of them returned there and retired and uh, and so forth. Uh, sometimes a home sits there for a while and, and we were in that situation where it was doing that and we wanted to revive it uh, in a position where our two daughters were young enough and they would have summers open and, uh, and so we, we uh, acquired that house and, and did some refurbishing on it and so it, gosh, that was back in, uh, oh, I guess, the early '90s, when we when we started to do that and made good use of it, um, with uh, the two girls growing up through uh, grade school, middle school, high school, and and even college, uh, they would spend some time over there, and and it allowed us then in the off season to spend time there. So we've uh, we've done that, uh, and when when uh, D passed, we decided the the best thing to do and and you know you're an attorney and these things are well beyond my scope of uh comprehension and and when you layer uh grease on top of it as well it makes it a little more complicated but we decided that it was probably the best time for the girls for stephanie and alexa to have their interest uh in the house and i kept a small interest in it just to maybe settle arguments and things like that and so it's been that way for a while and it's been open to the family and uh, so the uh the i guess they would be my my nieces uh, one of them in particular has uh, recently married but her job as a nurse allowed her open time to spend in this country and then to go over there they made good good use of that so i guess i guess it's a long way to say uh, the house is still there uh, we don't get there as often as we did when the girls were younger and uh, now both of our girls are adults and uh, and steph and dan are married with three children and they are actually planning had planned and we hope that that still happens this coming summer that they would take their three over there and spend some time at the house in uh, in Rhodes. So um, 
So that kind of brings you up to date. It's still there and still uh, gets some use. And it's, uh, it's, it's not something that has been uh, anything, you know, it's not easy to get to. You've got to figure out time and, uh, and travel time and all that to get there. But we've never, uh, never regretted uh, kind of bringing the house back to life and the family still using it. Well, and humorously, when Kay and I were getting ready to go to Greece, I called, I called Dwayne up and I said, Dwayne, you know, I know you live in Rhodes. I'm not sure we're going to get past Crete. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, what's a great thing to do over there and give me a few ideas. And, and uh, we talked for a while and I'm sure we hit a few highlights. But the one thing I can remember Dwayne, you telling me was how big the tomatoes were over there. Now, why in the world that sticks with me? But I remember out of all the things, it wasn't, hey, you ought to try this or that. It was, you cannot believe the produce over in Rhodes. So there you go. Well, as much as you would like a Greek salad here, they're better there. There's no question about that. It might have something to do with the vol volcanic uh, soil and the sunshine, but uh, the, the Greek salad there has always been uh, the best I've ever had. And uh, there are places here that come close, very close to replicating that. And if you can get even close to that, uh, a good Greek salad is, is worth uh, your time and effort. Well, I was going to say, my, my buddy Chris's, their Greek salads are tough to beat at Mr. Euro's. So there you go. Um, with respect to... Uh, not to Greece, but to uh, a little bit about your uh, your family. I was always interested uh, on this show how we all get interested in baseball because I don't know if it's an acquired taste or what. I mean, I can remember going to Comiskey Park with my dad. You walk up and you see the grass and you see these guys that are bigger than life to you. Uh, you become, I became an obnoxious little loudmouth fans screaming and yelling loved I can I can still see some of the vendors and so my dad was older than most of my friends dads but we had that in common how uh, besides the transistor radio in a small town in Missouri Missouri uh, and then moving over to Illinois what stands out how you got the bug for baseball well, I, I think it's, it's hard to be in the Midwest and certainly in the St. Louis area and not be a baseball fan. Uh, you know, that, the baseball experience there for the longest has been, you know, a, a regional, more than really a regional phenomenon in regard to the Cardinals because for all those years, they were the southernmost major league team and the westernmost major league team. And with the advent of radio, uh, they were, you know, they, they had fans in the Deep South and, you know, the Midwest and part of what would be the Near West, I guess. So I, I think the fact that it was, it was as prevalent as it was, I had uh, a couple uncles who were baseball fans. One was a big Cardinal fan and one was like the anti-Cardinal fan. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I, yeah, so I got it. Uh, I got it all. Uh, I got you know both perspectives there, but uh, you know that was a time when growing up as a kid, uh, 
before expansion, you know, you, you had, you had the major league baseball, you had the NFL and you had the NBA. And I was far less acquainted with hockey then because that was predated the blues coming to St. Louis. But it's, it was almost as if when you were 10 or 11, 12 years old, you knew the rosters of all of those teams, you knew who those players were. And it's, I, it's a little overwhelming now. I have two grandsons who are, who are pretty aware. They both play and they're, they're both big fans. And they amaze me that they know uh, as many players in all of these sports as they do. I'm not sure I could have kept up with all of them. Uh, baseball just turned out to be my favorite sport, uh, one that I uh, enjoyed. Uh, might have had a little more success at it at a younger age than, um, than some of the other sports. Uh, but it was such a presence in St. Louis. And I, I do recall my dad uh, taking me to a game at what was Bush Stadium at the time, formerly called Sportsman's Park. And when uh, the brewery bought it, uh, the Bushes, you know, refurbished the thing and made it really uh, uh, kind of a, a – a spectacle uh, for me it was otherworldly I remember going in there the first time walking into that ballpark it was a night game well number one I'd never seen lights that bright at any event I'd ever been to in my uh, young life to that point so I, I think the to be under the the floodlights of a night game at Bush Stadium and then I, I never saw grass greener than it was it wasn't always that way prior to the refurbishing of that park but it was a beautiful ballpark yeah and for a kid it was really otherworldly for me and i was just taken by the live event of being there in that ballpark and so we we would go back occasionally my dad was not um, was not a giant uh, sports fan uh, and back then Wow, you know, we'll all date ourselves here, but you know, you could you could get into the ballpark for next to nothing. I, at, at one point, I think box seats were three dollars and fifty cents, and that was a lot of money back then. That's what I remember. But I do remember going to a game when, uh, in fact, I talked to uh, uh, Tim McCarver about this because I think he he caught that game. Uh, the Giants were in town, and Bob Gibson was facing Juan Marichal. And I saw um, those two go at it. Somehow we had seats down the right field line. So, you know, Marichal had that giant leg kick. Oh, yeah. And, and it was down near their bullpen. And as a kid, I watched him warm up. And, uh, you know, I just thought he threw like that every time he threw a pitch. But – you know, being a, the age I am now, you have to sort of warm up to those giant leg kicks he had. Yeah. And I remember being uh, – when I saw him start to warm up, there was no leg kick like that. And I was going, wait, I, I, I felt I was being shortchanged because I wanted to see the big leg kick from Juan Marichal. And so by the time he was finishing warming up, I saw, you know, he was, he was uh, as high as he was ever going to be in terms of that, that left foot being – you know, almost above his head with that leg kick. And and the game was interesting in that uh, I think 
Chuck Hiller was leading off playing second base for the Giants, and, and by that time, Duke Snyder was in a Giants uniform playing wow. right field. It was Marischal and Gibson. Uh, Hiller and Snyder led off that game with back-to-back home runs against Gibson. And about the fourth inning, Kenny Boyer hit a home run into the bleachers and left off Marischal to make it 2-1, to one, and the game ended 2-1. to one. And um, that, that game always stuck out in my mind as a, as a special event, particularly great? when you see those two guys pitch. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was a different, different era, but, I mean, the, those two names are synonymous with greatness. I, um, my favorite, I wrote an article when I was 16, and I'm sure I mentioned it to you, when Marichal hit Roseboro over the head. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Cannon, a, a columnist, syndicated columnist, had an article in the Daily News talking about how baseball was dying, it was barbaric, and I, I took offense to that. And a couple of days later, an advocate, then, even then, even then. And so, uh, um, uh, somebody came up to me and goes, Hey man, you know, you're, you're in the newspaper. And I go, what do you mean? He go, I grab a daily news and the headline on the back and the second page of the sports page was 16 year old goes to bat for baseball. I gave my little pitch and then the sports editor came up with a few jokes about, you know, me being, 16 and comparing their actions to what might take place in a bar. Um, anyway, Marichal, fast forward, God, 50 years, 40 years, was at one of these card shows that I hopelessly go to to get uh, bats and stuff signed and, and usually talk about Nelly to these guys for a while, which is always fun. But Marichal said, I won't sign that picture of me with the bat over Roseboro that was in Sports Illustrated, but um, because Roseboro's no longer with us, and I just don't think that was my finest moment. He's a pretty articulate guy. I said, well, here, read my article. And in the middle of the show, he reads this, you know, six-inch article, and he goes, I'll sign this. And he signed my article, Hall of Fame, da-da-da-da-da, and it's over, over my shoulder in my office, and it's just uh, one of my prized, uh, prized pieces. But I'm... You know, How cool is that? that it, that's it, the best. It, it's the best. My second best piece, and I, I'll get to your favorite. I'm not sure, besides Remington's, that you uh, collect memorabilia, not to call Frederick Remington any memorabilia. But in 1986, our law firm was representing Dick Hauser and Rocky Calavito and a few other guys. And so one of the tasks that I had was to go down to spring training. We at that time owned the Omaha Royals, my family did. And so I did an interview at Dick Hauser, the spring training after they won the World Series. And Dick, at that point, didn't realize that he had brain cancer. But um, you could tell in the interview that he'd forget a few things, he'd miss a few words. But it is without a doubt my, and I've got Gehrig's autograph, I got baseball. The interview I did at Dick Hauser, and it's on one of my podcasts. Although my videographer couldn't stop the, couldn't filter out the wind back in those days. Uh, but if you live through the wind and you can tolerate it, it's my favorite. I just love it. He was such a good guy. Absolutely. I, I, see, those are, those are the great stories about this game that I think uh, that has allowed the game to endure. And I, and I think we'll continue to do that. And, and maybe, you know, what we're doing 
uh, helps that along because the the game is not only you know the written word, but it's it's the experience that all of us have with it. It's the stories that go with it, and and those are all priceless. Well, and there are two more things before I let you go. I want to talk about one is uh, um, the book you wrote because. Uh, even though it didn't make it into the final cut, I remember one of my favorite days, Dave and I went and uh, spent five or six hours with you and your brother-in-law and then had dinner with uh, prepared by Carla when you were interviewing Dave endlessly. Uh, and it was so much fun because your questions are great. Dave's answers are great. And ultimately um, you came out with, um, with your books. So I want to talk about, I want to talk about, um, you know, position to win, but I also want to talk about the unique, may not be unique, but it's certainly rare that your son-in-law pitched very successfully in uh, Major League Baseball, and I think he's married to Carla. Is that right? Uh, well, he's he's married to uh, Stephanie. Stephanie. Our, yeah, our older daughter. And... Um, you know, it's really interesting. A couple of things about that. Um, and, and I recall that evening when, when you guys were here, um, we had an idea for a book that has, that, that maybe, maybe you have struck something here because if I, if I can find that, we interviewed a number of people and Davey was, was one of the perfect guys for that. And, and, I had a I had a title for the book, the idea, really about how this game. It kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier, and the game has room for everybody. It has appeal for everybody, regardless of what your ability is. You know, it, it's a multifaceted game and requires multifaceted abilities, and therefore multifaceted people to be in the game. And Davey was one of those guys who just fit the concept of this book and and we never got it to the point where we could submit it and maybe do something with it and maybe you've uh, you've just hit upon something well I'd love to be able to find all of that the information and and revive that idea so thanks for that which is which might give me something to do here other than well, uh, and if I'm not mistaken, it was Carlo's brother, maybe that was tape recording the interview. That, that's exactly right. At the time, he's he has gone on and and has become an architect, but he he had thoughts that he wanted to be involved in uh, in writing a book, and so the two of us did collect some data. Uh, we did some interviews with folks, and and if I can track him down, I, I think he has the information, and it's maybe stash somewhere. So I, that'd be cool. I'd love to, I'd love to revive that. Um, because well, they're, that, they're great individual stories. Now that you're a successful, uh, published author, maybe, uh, the, the second book, uh, would be expected from your literary fans. Well, that'd be fun. We, doing that book, I did it in, uh, in, uh, collaboration with Dave Scheiber who's done a lot of great stuff uh, himself. And it was fun. Uh, it was uh, something that uh, uh, along, it was a, 
the move, the impetus, I think, for that was along the same lines of the book we talked about, um, position to win. I, my feeling is if if I could have the career that I've had, uh, coming from where we all come from and what we what we've done, uh, I, I think any anybody can do almost anything they want to do. Sometimes it's a little more difficult. The environment's going to make it difficult, the economic environment and all of that. And, and that was sort of uh, the moving part of that book, um, just to put down, you know, the, the kind of a life story. I wanted to, selfishly, I wanted to do it for uh, our three grandchildren, just so that they would have uh, some, uh, some documentation what life was like and what their grandfather did and their grandmother and, and, you know, their family across the board. So um, that was kind of the personal uh, driving force behind that. And it was a fun project and uh, maybe it's time we, uh, we do another one. And in regard to that, um, you know, our situation was a little unique in that um, our older daughter, Stephanie married Dan Wheeler who uh, pitched in the major leagues and, and, um, you know, Dan's another story, not unlike Dave Nelson or, or my own. And that, you know, he was a kid from Rhode Island, um, you know, working class kid from Rhode Island where, uh, pitchers in that part of the country don't get a lot of work and don't draw a lot of attention, but he, he, uh, had drew enough of attention so that he was scouted and wound up signing, with the Tampa Bay club initially and battled his way to get to the big leagues and wound up spending, I think parts of 13 seasons in the major leagues and, uh, uh, four post seasons, two world series. So I told him for a kid from uh, Rhode Island, he acquitted himself quite well. Absolutely. Um, Probably and, not and, an awful lot of guys from Rhode Island. Yeah. And that's, and so that's been, um, you know, it, it's been really a blessing for us. Our whole approach with uh, daughters and baseball, if you're in baseball, is that, you know, you're not going to date any players. You know that. And her mother was uh, uh, oh, that's great. first and foremost about that. And and while Steph was going to school, she did a little work with visiting teams in the broadcast booth as a stage manager and statistician. So she was around some of those people. But – you know, that was not something that, uh, that we uh, encouraged in her. And uh, lo and behold, the only one that she really uh, dated and, and eventually married was Dan. And uh, the, the short side of that long story is that they have three children who uh, are literally five minutes down the street from us. And uh, we could not have been more pleased uh, with the way things have worked out. So, you know, uh, we, uh, we've been blessed in many, in many ways in regard to life in this game. And, uh, and that's been one of them. Well, you've had, uh, so far a great career. I know you're anxious to get back, uh, into the broadcast booth. I'm anxious for you to get back into the broadcast booth. Um, uh, one of the, uh, things that, that I still do is watch MLB network. And even luckily my memory's fading. So I was laughing with somebody that I, I watched one of the uh, world series games that I was actually at, which was game seven of the Cleveland Indians 
losing to the, uh, uh, I guess at that time they were the Miami or the Florida Marlins, whoever it was that Mesa blew the blew the the lead, and then uh, Nagy gave up the winning hit, and I was there. Game five, it snowed in Cleveland. Game <laughs> six and seven, a hundred degrees in Florida, and I I, I remember. You know, Nelly always said, hey, man, you, you know, whenever you go to a ball game, keep a ball with you because you just never know. So you'll recall if you go under, I guess it's still Joe Rob, whatever, uh, Hard Rock, where the Super Bowl was. But back then, the, the, everything was underground. They had the team bus would come through a tunnel to pick guys up. So I'm waiting for Nelly outside of the clubhouse after they lost game seven. And who walks out but Dave Winfield? Winfield's. <laughs> standing next to me <laughs> and I I go you know I'm a buddy of Nelly's I know this is a bad time but would you, and he signed the ball to his wow. credit I'm not sure it's totally legible but to <laughs> his credit so uh yeah you know I just um had so many great experiences and uh, including meeting you through Dave and I appreciate that Every day, I appreciate Nelly, and I have certainly appreciated your time, my friend, uh, today. And I hope we can do it again because uh, it's entertaining, fun, and in these difficult times, uh, we need to have some fun uh, scattered through some of the somber details that come out of this situation that the country's in right now. So keep healthy, keep safe. Give my best to Carla and. Uh, We'll get you on the, the next time, man. You too. It's been great. It's been my, uh, my privilege. And uh, as Carla reminds me, fun's the best thing to have. And uh, that's what we're going to try to do. So stay safe and we'll do it again soon. And we'll talk a little bit about your new book. So get on that. All right. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dwayne. Okay. Take care. All right, man. Have a good one. You too. You too.